Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Human Behavior Show. We're back with another episode, and today my guest is Osama Osama Sayed, who is a kick-ass dermatologist in New York, Mount Sinai, but is from London, uh, I guess, originally, well, Abu Dhabi originally, and he's a friend of mine, and I was actually with him. I actually got to meet him in person in New York, gosh, about two months ago. And it's incredible. And nowadays, he's doing a lot of stuff in crypto and NFTs and technology, as well as doing a lot of content, um, giving people advice on decisions to make in life. So, Osama, welcome. So glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Saheb. Uh, can you hear me? It's my first time using Colin, so I just want to make sure that uh, I've got everything set Yeah, up. you're clear. You're clear. <laughs> I can hear you very clearly. So Perfect. to kick off, would love for you to, you know, tell everyone your background. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I actually am originally from Pakistan, not so much Abu Dhabi. So I was born in Pakistan. My, my family moved to the UK when I was five. Uh, family of doctors, as is the case, in a lot of South Asian backgrounds. <laughs> so my dad and my three older brothers are all doctors. Uh, so I did live my, most of my life and did my medical school education in the UK, went to Imperial College in London. And then graduated in 2016, at which point I moved across to the U.S. to pursue residency training out here, um, mainly because I, I just thought the training pathway in the U.K. was a little bit too long and convoluted for me. Um, and I thought just the job of being a doctor was not the most attractive over there in the U.K. So moved out here in 2016, chasing that American dream, um, was fortunate enough to match into a dermatology training program here in New York at Mount Sinai. And finished that last July. Um, and so that kind of brought to a nice little uh, ending my medical training journey. Uh, and so I'm now out here as an attending or a consultant, as you might know it in the UK. Um, and Abu Dhabi connection is actually my, my dad moved to Abu Dhabi just at, at the beginning of my university time. So that was actually a later in life inclusion for us. Gosh, Osama, you've been, you've been everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, right? Which I think less scared to take risks and move and often when we make moves we open up new opportunities and that's something which is a behavior which i see in people who do become successful and osama being a medical doctor you talk a lot about tech as well and that's something i have in common with you and following your journey has been pretty incredible and guys you'll be able to listen to this podcast on apple podcast and spotify so don't worry um, I'll be asking Osama some very interesting questions, and we're going to be doing this for about 30 minutes or so. So it's going to be high energy, high octane, and we'll get some of his secrets out. So, Osama, you were essentially um, in London, trained to be a doctor, uh, super successful, I think, top of your year for, for quite a few exams, um, top 1%. And you matched in a specialty which is unheard of for IMG, an international medical student, to get into. And that, too in the city of New York, Mount Sinai, which is super competitive. So firstly, before we kind of go into the rest of it, uh, tell me what, what, what were your secrets to doing so well, the dedication, and how did you beat the competition? Sure, yes. I mean, obviously, uh, th th there's. I always think in situations like this, when you're trying to beat um, odds that are stacked against you really high, uh, there's definitely a component which you can control, which is your own hard work and, and the effort you put in. And then there's always some degree of luck or blessing or however you, you want to attribute it to. And so in my case, I think uh, there's that age old saying, you know, you create your own luck. I think there is some luck that is, is truly not of your control. But I think you have to have yourself in the position that when certain things fall in your favor, you have to 
put yourself in a position to take advantage of it. And I think that is how I would describe uh, my journey to dermatology training. So I actually headed out to the US uh, on my um, elective, which is something that you do for a couple of months at the end of your medical school in the UK. And so initially, I didn't even know what specialty I wanted to do because um, in the UK, we don't really decide on our specialties uh, throughout medical school as concretely, because even after we graduate, we still have a couple of years of moving around different specialties as the uh, training uh, pathway in the UK necessitates through your foundation years. And so I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to apply for. And I actually came out here to the to New York um, for an orthopedic surgery rotation, weirdly enough, which is very far from dermatology. And so I came out here for this orthopedic surgery rotation and thinking, you know, uh, I'm going to develop a passion for orthopedic surgery once I see it done in a really elite institution. And so I came out here to the Upper East Side at the Hospital for Special Surgery, which is the number one ortho hospital in the world. And I thought, wow, okay, let's 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 see what this is like. And within just two to three days, where I had 4.30 a.m. starts of pre-ward rounding at 4.30 a.m. and being in the operating room until 11 p.m., I very quickly realized that orthopedic surgery was not for me. And so at that point, I thought, okay, I really need to pivot and pick a different specialty that, that suits my interest and my future lifestyle goals more, more uh, comfortably. And so I was sitting there in the library of HSS, uh, probably when I was supposed to be in the operating room, scrolling through different specialties and kind of just doing a quick mental <laughs> checklist of whether or not they would suit what I wanted to do. And when I found myself coming down to dermatology, it fits so much of what I love. So I love the idea of being able to actually treat conditions and having good outcomes, which dermatology is blessed enough to have that mix of medicine and surgery, that patient range of, you know, whether it's pediatric patients all the way to uh, to elderly care patients, you really get the full spectrum. And so it had so much going for it. But the one thing that I knew um, wasn't in my favor was the competitiveness. And a quick Google search or one of these student room forum searches or something for, you know, IMG, International Medical Graduate Matching in Dermatology, uh, yielded some pretty abusive and kind of uh, disheartening responses. But I just thought to myself, listen, uh, if, if you're going to give up without even trying based on just the fact that it's unlikely, that is not a great reason to give up a specialty that takes so many other boxes for you. And so I started the hustling part of it. I started emailing program directors in New York while I was still out here on my ortho rotation, emailing dermatology program directors. And um, I'm a big believer in cold emailing. I think it can change your life sending cold emails as long as you're happy with a success rate of 1%. So I sent out a bunch of emails and thankfully, the Mount Sinai program director replied to me. And I said, hey, you know, really appreciate a bit of advice. I'm someone looking to apply to dermatology. If you'll even give me five minutes, I'll bring you your favorite coffee to save you the time that it would take you to go get that. Like, just to go <laughs> for five minutes. And that worked. So I went to go see him. And um, that was kind of, I'd say, the lucky component of it. The fact that he even saw that email and decided to reply. And then when I went to go speak to him, he was initially talking me through why it's impossible for an IMG to match into dermatology. And he was saying how, you know, the, the book knowledge is often not high enough uh, amongst the IMG applicants and sometimes communication skills are a problem. And then halfway through, he kind of just asked like, oh, have you done your step one? Uh, and I said, yeah. And I told him that I scored a, a 262. So, so uh, the step one back then had a three-digit scoring system. And that 262 put me in kind of the top 1% scoring range of it. And that basically, that revelation changed the entire conversation. So in response to that part, he just said, a 262, uh, that's insane. And then immediately he said, okay, what are you planning to do next year? And at that point, I actually had an academic foundation program job lined up in Guy's a Hospital in London, which is you know, very prestigious. I was very excited about having got that. And so I told him, I'm planning to go out there and do my one year out there in the UK. And he said, all right, but listen, do you want to work in the US long term or the UK? And I said, well, the US. And he said, okay, come out here. 
do a research program with me for, for you know six seven months while you apply for the match and that'll give you even more of a chance to impress me and if that works out for you we'll give you a spot in residency and if it doesn't you won't get it i can't guarantee you anything but that's an opportunity if you want to take it and so i think that willingness to take risks that you mentioned earlier definitely came into play there because i had a very clear and i'd say easy and and you know you know arguably prestigious path out there in london um that was much more secure. And then on the other hand, I had this opportunity to impress by, you know, quitting, resigning my job in the UK, coming out here and never getting GMC registered, which, you know, wasn't a very popular decision but with my <laughs> medical school. Uh, but um, I, I just thought, you know what, that's what I want to do. And you don't often get a chance like this. So I just resigned before I ever started my AFP. I headed out to New York with that kind of uh, taking that chance. And thankfully, all praise to God, it, it worked out. And then one year on, I'd matched in dermatology. Wow, that's an incredible story, uh, how that happened. I mean, uh, let's be honest, the top 1%, that is so difficult to get. So that's going to impress anyone. So that part of the story is is uh, obviously you have and, and that's what they look for in these programs as well. Um, so um, I would put it down to hard work as well as, I guess, him replying to your emails, a small element of luck. You, you definitely deserved him checking your email. But um, <laughs> uh, it worked out well. I mean, Salma's in New York. You're having a good time. I've, I've come out to see you. And um, the, the lifestyle is great. Becoming a dermatologist, every something that you know anyone would dream of who's a doctor. It's, it's one of the most prestigious specialties. But then all of a sudden, <laughs> this year, Osama announces he's going into NFTs, crypto, tech, and he thinks if he would go back, maybe f- being a physician wouldn't be the right choice. Thinking about remote work, thinking about how artificial intelligence is advancing, and I've been watching some of your videos, and that's exactly what I was talking about three or four years ago as well. When I was like, "Hmm, do I want to stick in medicine or do I see tech? The, the potential of tech. We're seeing all these companies booming, you know, acquisitions, etc., and, and the future being in tech. So, can you dive a bit more into that for Sama? What led you to this change of heart? Sure, sure. So, so I guess it's a little bit more subtle than like if I could go back. I think if I could go back, it would still be a difficult choice. Meaning, if I was in the year, you know, two thousand eight and still deciding what to apply for two thousand and nine, but uh, more so, I, I wanted to advise people who were in the position right now. So imagine you're you're a sixteen, seventeen year old right now, and the year is twenty twenty two, and having now seen how advanced things like remote work have become and things like AI have become. I think if I was had that choice of whether or not to enter the, the, the long training pathway of medicine right now, I would advise people against it. And so, right, I'm very blessed to be in the position I'm in because, you know, um, I don't think there were many of these other options like remote work and other things in the last 10 or 12 years. And now I'm thankfully out of the other end of the training pathway and I have this luxury of a quite flexible work schedule with something like dermatology and, and job security and, and good kind of finances to fall back on. So I think I'm very blessed in the position that, that I am in. And I don't think I would go back and change that uh, in my own timeline. But again, if a college student came up with me right now, I would say, okay, listen, you, you have to think about the various headwinds and tailwinds that exist in society. And for me, at least, this idea of this confluence between remote work and also the opportunities and threats of AI uh, make it so that the healthcare job, the the doctor's job is going to be radically different, I think, in the next five to 10 years. Uh, And this idea of tech, uh, tech jobs, um, I've always been quite interested in tech and this idea of, of, you know, startups in the business world and especially the one year I spent at Imperial College Business School while I was intercalating, it kind of planted the seed in my mind. Um, so I feel like I've always had an inkling towards these things. Uh, but for me, I had to kind of complete my 
um, a journey through, through medicine and my healthcare training journey first because I'm quite a risk averse person. And so it's only now that as of last July, I got my board certification and I have that security. I ended up going back and now wanting to scrap that itch that I've had for a long time. And so um, what I would say is, uh, for me at least, the, 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 the advice I'd give to people who, who are considering applying to medical school now is think about the fact that so many future jobs are likely going to have this hybrid component where, yes, you'll be required to be in office, maybe in some jobs, occasionally dipping in the office, but otherwise you will have that flexibility and luxury of working from home or working from another city. And I hear some people say, oh, you know, I don't really care about traveling that much. Um, and, and the truth is, you don't need to be the person who goes to Istanbul and Buenos Aires and all these kind of things. Maybe you just want the flexibility to go home and spend some time with your family who are maybe in another state. Or if you have kids, you know, and, and, and child care is a problem or something on your mind, well, that's cool. You have the flexibility to stay at home if there's a last minute emergency. And I think once that becomes the norm of a lot of other white collar jobs. When you then look uh, towards those jobs as a doctor who needs to be in a fixed location and seeing your patients in front of you, um, I think you may start to regret that. And that's just something I want to flag up and have people think about now so that um, if they decide a medical career, so for them, that's great. At least they went into it with their eyes open and they had thought about all of these potential changes in the future. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, that imperial year same for me was was one which got me super into into the startup world and and how COVID has impacted you know remote work and some, so many companies have gone remote. Uh, and an episode the other day with with Sana about remote work actually, especially after Elon went contrarian about it all, so it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. But we live in the experience economy now, right? Our, our parents of that generation were just trying to be stable. And when they were looking for a job, they were looking, they're optimizing for wealth, right? A lot of the time um, they could work. They didn't care about how hard they worked. It was just about optimizing for wealth. And now it's about this work-life balance. How hard are you working the return on investment? The, the energy expended per, I guess, what you're getting back in the time you have to enjoy yeah. that wealth as well, right? Those experiences. And you're right. You're absolutely right. So I was in, Portugal recently for work and I was like yeah just need my laptop so I was a digital nomad and I would do my day but then I could just enjoy the you know the rest of the hours and, and I actually enjoy the being completely off is, it can be nice but I feel like I want to be productive every single day but also enjoy <laughs> yeah. every single day and that's impossible with like a, a fixed one location for 40 years of your life because that's where you've made it right and I think what's really interesting is, is that exact idea of, I think digital nomadism kind of brings the idea of that Tim Ferriss four hour work week in, into a much more accessible format for so many people, because not all of us are as good at, uh, as Tim Ferriss is at kind of condensing our work into four hours. Uh, but he would always encourage this idea of mini retirement. So he said, you know, don't wait to achieve all of your traveling goals and all your experience goals at the end of your career when you're old and your health maybe is betraying you. Uh, he encouraged people to kind of take these little mini vacations, uh, mini retirement, sorry, uh, throughout their working life. And I think this digital nomadism just makes that even more of a hybridized format where you can actually just have a job where you're getting paid, where you're being productive but truly have that experience of living in a different country with different cultures, different uh, kind of uh, cuisines, different histories. And I think that is so much a part of what I uh, value and cover in life. Uh, and I think even if you don't think that's a priority for you right now, um, 
just try to fast forward to, to five to 10 years in the future where this ecosystem for digital nomads is built out even further. I think Lisbon is a great example of somewhere which is trying to optimize for digital nomads. And I feel like you've done your required pilgrimage for digital nomads <laughs> in Lisbon. Uh, but, but I think- So many Americans, many- <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then I think, I think there'll be more and more hubs like this, right? And I think more and more this idea of, of short-term rentals, of flexible schooling, of, of you know, social lives emerging from with fellow digital nomads in these different hubs that is only going to get more and more popular over time and i think there's danger that um these jobs that require you to be tied to one location uh, are going to just be a very clear uh, kind of uh inferior prospect for a lot of people and 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 to look at that it's insane that sometimes uk medical training especially probably american as well most familiar but even taking a month out is frowned upon. You have to continuously get through training when life is so short anyway. And then yeah. on, in contrast, the startup founders, people working at tech companies, when they switch jobs, they're encouraged to take months off and travel there. And that is not negatively marked against them. It seems a positive thing. Absolutely. And, and I think just that idea also that this kind of touches upon this idea of, you know, salaried work where you kind of eat what you kill uh, versus something which gives you a salary but also gives you the opportunity for some kind of ownership or some kind of asymmetrical gain which I think a lot of startup and tech jobs do it's very normal for you to be given equity in almost any startup or tech job that you're given now Uh, and so you'll get a very generous salary package you'll get that flexibility of work you'll get that idea of equity whereas as a doctor I mean especially in the UK but even here in in the US uh, unless you own your own practice which some people choose to do but comes with its own headache um, you are very rarely given equity in a group that you're working in and so yes you'll be getting a very comfortable salary I'm not trying to kind of say that it's a bad job at all very grateful for what we do but when you're starting to compare for things that, you know, um, are out there, we don't have that idea that one day, you know, we could be working and uh, the equity that we've been getting vested across several years, you IPO and suddenly you've got a couple of million dollars worth of stock. You know, I'm not saying that's typical, but it can happen. I have friends <laughs> who've got six to eight million dollars worth of stock in companies that they've been working at. Uh, and as a doctor, you will truly never have that. So, you know, it's, it's just something else to keep in mind. Exactly. When I first started hearing about equity vesting and all of that, uh, it was 2015 and I was just kind of mind blown that, okay, you have a chance of your hard work giving you a lot more reward. And that's kind of exciting as well that the possibility of what you're working on could become big one day. So Salma, I do want to go into AI before we kind of jump into some of the things you're working on right now. Mm -hmm. So I watched your video on AI and I I agreed with it entirely. Uh, and how automation is coming, how creativity, they're going to be the skills, creative skills are the ones that AI finds most difficult to replicate. And therefore, if we develop more of those type of skills, communication, things like that, we have more of an advantage and, and things like pattern recognition will become more diminished in terms of value. So um, there's there's a big AI hype last year or the year before. And, and I'm hearing less this year, less people are kind of, you know, how people jump onto buzzwords Mm -hmm. but there has been a lot of progress still in ai and we're seeing in medicine i mean you're in dermatology which is the perfect specialty for that for pattern recognition at times and then applying um, computer vision um so tell me about what what your kind of thesis or what your thoughts are on ai in the next few years sure yeah so i think uh i agree that it's not so much in vogue right now in terms of coverage in terms of media i think to some extent the media can only focus on like one different technological breakthrough at a time that's getting hype and i think in the last year or so there's been a lot of coverage of blockchain technology and things like that and that's kind of i think nudged ai out of being the the fun new thing that you know they focus on every now and then but if you look at the progress that is happening in the background it, it is truly staggering and i would 
encourage anyone who um, hasn't kept up to date for, for, for a while to just check out uh, the, the, the Dolly system. I'm sure you come across it, the D-A-L-L hyphen E. Uh, and it is this uh, AI uh, kind of software which can generate images based on your text description. So you can write, for example, um, a, a cat holding a yellow umbrella in the style of Vincent van Gogh. And the AI software will create oh, wow. a piece of artwork in front of you. And if you just watch a couple of videos about this technology, I think it'll make the hair stand up on your arm because you will start to see uh, the level of improvement. And, and that thing that I mentioned in my video that, you know, AI development and progress is not linear, it's exponential. And I feel like seeing little glimpses like this will give people an insight in, into what people mean when, when they describe that because... Um, it's it's staggering what it's capable of doing and so when you compare it with something like that to the task of what a job like say a doctor involves where yes people might think oh that's so complicated how can how could an ai algorithm possibly deal with this the reality is we are all effectively trained in medical school to become little algorithm machines we we look at data points from patients yes history but also their imaging and their lab work and their vital signs and then we put all of that together and we are taught to pattern recognize and then match it towards a treatment algorithm. We go on UpToDate, which you know, is, is a website giving you the most up-to-date treatment recommendations and doses for each condition. And so um, if you see some of what AI is currently capable of, the idea that it could take in those initial data points of what a patient may have and then spit out the literal kind of next steps and, and the, and the uh, treatment protocols is really not a very big leap. And that is something like internal medicine, which isn't even immediately associated with being, you know, replaced by AI, let alone the more low-lying fruit like the radiology, uh, the pathology, the dermatology. And I think a lot of people say, oh, but you know what, they will always need doctors. And I say, yes, absolutely, they will always need doctors. But are they going to need doctors who have had 10 years of training and who can therefore command a salary like we can command right now? Or are they instead going to need people who, yes, still have a few years of training, but have more emphasis on communication, empathy, bedside manner, and the input and delivery of results which an AI algorithm gives them. And I think that is the future that we're heading towards, this AI-powered future that we're heading towards in medicine, where um, you have far more emphasis on primary care, on physician extenders like nurse practitioners and physician assistants, and uh, these generalist doctors who naturally that's going to drive down the, the you know, the, the salary uh, kind of strength that doctors are able to demand. And for an overall healthcare system, that's a great thing. You know, I don't want to just be biased and selfish from a doctor's perspective and be moaning about the role of AI because from a societal perspective, that's going to make healthcare much more affordable and accessible for a lot of people. And so, you know, overall, it's a net benefit. But I want people who are thinking of heading into jobs in healthcare to know that this is coming, that this is on the horizon. And so... Right now, when I'm a dermatologist and I can command whatever money I can command right now because there's a waiting list of, you know, multiple months for someone to see a dermatologist. What about in future when there's uh, a nurse practitioner who's a general, you know, primary care provider and a patient comes in, they, they take a video or a photo or make them stand in a booth and take a thousand photos of a patient's skin. And then the diagnostic algorithm gives them suggested diagnosis and next steps. That is going to save a lot of need to refer to dermatologists. And so these are the kind of things I want people to start thinking about because, um, it will happen. It will happen in our lifetimes. And the guarantee is it will happen sooner than you think. Absolutely right. And and I, I saw a bit of a trend about two years ago where I saw medical students jumping into data science and computer science masters, especially near your, near your areas, UCL, Imperial. 
and you know, yeah. Oxford, Cambridge. And, and it was quite a stark contrast. And all of a sudden, people were really wanting to learn more about how supervised learning, unsupervised learning, coding, all these things work. Um, and I found that super fascinating. Um, so, Osama, I do want to ask you next before we move on to your projects is, do you have a mm-hmm. framework for making life decisions? You've made a lot of life decisions, UK, America, medicine, tech. You seem to, you know, make them pretty seamlessly. Have you got a framework which helps you kind of weigh up what decision to make? Sure. So, so for me, I think this is uh, very telling of the fact that, as you mentioned, in our parents' generation, the, the first generation immigrants, for them, their decisions were based on survival, right? It was based on survival and being able to, to sustain life for them and their families. And so they, they were much more sacrificial in their thinking and much more uh, kind of pragmatic. I think I'm sure my mindset is more shaped by by the luxury I've been afforded in life of having a stable family and having a stable economic situation with a dad who's a doctor. But for me, I definitely bias towards quality of life and whatever I do. And so for me, when it was making a decision between the UK and the US, um, I like to be very logical about it. I looked at the financial prospects. I looked at the years of training. I looked at how long it would take me to get towards a comfortable quality of life. Part of that is finances, and I make no bones about that. I make no apology talking about finances, and I think that's a big mistake a lot of people in healthcare make is they think that we have taken this kind of uh, vow of never valuing finances. But no, for me, finances is definitely a metric for quality of life. But I feel like so much more goes into quality of life. So there's, there's the financial component, there's the flexibility component, um, and there's the idea of that, that self-fulfillment, the whole, you know, are you... Uh, satisfied. And for me, a big part of me being satisfied is having uh, creativity and having some kind of avenue for my creativity. And so those are the main things for me is is financial uh, kind of uh, success, uh, having flexibility and having ownership of your own time, which is the you know truest form of freedom, which I think uh, that's what money is for. And then uh, finally, having something that makes you feel sat- satisfied and fulfilled. For me, that's creativity. For other people, that might be other things. Um, and so those are generally the metrics which I make every decision uh, based on. And that's why I came out here to the US. And that's why similarly, having finished my dermatology training now, I decided to go down to initially three days a week clinical, so part-time uh, clinical work, and now down to one day a week clinical. So I only see patients on one day a week, which is foregoing a significant amount of salary. And I hear people saying to me, oh, how have you figured out the situation where you know, you're know you only working <laughs> one day a week? And I say, well, it's easy. You just have to accept less money. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like they're paying me full time, but I'm working one day a week. Um, so, so that's why, you know, for me, I wanted to, to, to maximize quality of life. And that is a big thing for me. Osama, I love it. love the way you think through things. And now I want to know about Ape Docs. What are you up to in the space? Um, I know you've launched the project Ape Docs um, and it looks super cool. And you've gone into blockchain as well. Could you explain to, to me and the listeners, um, what is the project about? Sure, yeah. So so this is kind of putting on my blockchain NFT crypto hat. And so for a bit of background, since around 2016, 2017, I've been really, really into cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies. And so um, this was best evidence back in 2017. I think I told you before how I took all of the extra cash that Shireen, my wife and I had, which was our wedding money at the time, which is a couple, you know, thousand dollars only. And I put it all into Ethereum back then. And uh, Shireen thought I was insane because uh, it was all the money we had at that time. Um, but I was just so, so obsessed with this technology and the potential future promise of it. Um, and so since that point on, I've been very, very uh, closely keeping track of everything that's happening in the blockchain world. And so when NFTs really came onto the scene early last year, um, I naturally started becoming more and more obsessive over those. And I think for a lot of people, 
this idea of NFTs is a bit confusing. They think of it as, you know, oh, it's artwork or, oh, it's cartoons. Like, I get it. It's digital artwork of some kind. Um, but people don't really fully grasp, I think, the, the fundamental technology behind NFTs and why they're so exciting. And so for me, the part that's the most exciting about NFTs is this idea of verifiable digital ownership of an asset. And I think that is the part that becomes really transformational. And so in the context of ApeDocs, each of our NFTs, it's a project that we made uh, for healthcare workers. We wanted to create a unified community of healthcare workers around the world. Um, and the reason for that being, we thought that healthcare workers, you know, medical students, doctors, dentists, nurses, we had so much in common. And I think so much of what we went through during the pandemic, especially, really brought to light how many of the same sacrifices and challenges uh, we all have to deal with. But there's really not that same sense of unity. So I think even though we all go through the same thing, Often we're quite combative with each other. It's a bit adversarial. It's a bit of, you know, competitiveness. Um, and so we thought, you know, what would be nice is if we had this unified community that was brought together under one identity. And so that was the origin story of ApeDocs as a concept. And I think the NFTs themselves effectively act as a membership pass to this community. Um, but the beauty of NFTs is because they're kind of, you could, as a finite supply. So there's 10,000 of the NFTs. Not only their membership pass, but it's actually also an ownership share, if you think about it that way, because you own a one in 10,000 of the entire ApeDocs project. And so for us, the vision behind the community is we wanted to give this healthcare community um, a bunch of perks, discounts, uh, career help, mentorship, things that are, that, that are focused on helping them uh, live more happy, meaningful, fulfilled lives, both uh, personally and uh, from a professional perspective. Um, and if we continue to grow that and add more and more value over time, then everyone who is part of our early community will stand to benefit from that in the long term. And so that is kind of the broad strokes uh, kind of overview of what we're trying to do there. I mean, that's taken a lot of work for you to actually get that up to speed. And, and people don't realize, I mean, uh, the drawing Shireen did and yourself understanding the infrastructure so quickly. I know you went to the crypto conferences as well, the NFT conferences and networking in the space. Then you guys have, you know, a big social media following and setting up Discord channels and engaging the community and some partnerships as well that you guys are working on. So, I mean, I'm super impressed by how guy, how you guys have just done it. You've launched it and just executed on end. So... With that, I mean, best of luck with Ape Docs. I think it's this fantastic initiative uh, for health professionals. Are you thinking of any other NFT projects? Are you focusing uh, purely on this one? And uh, what what are some of the? Have you got any future partnerships you're going to be announcing soon? Um, what does that look like? Sure. Yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, other NFT projects, so, so I, I advise and I give uh, kind of consultancy to people who are working on projects when they approach me, just purely based on. The experiences I've had and because I'm all about trying to bring more and more people into the space. Um, I want to give the caveat that I think NFTs and blockchain and Web3 uh, currently have a really bad reputation. And I think almost anyone who sees the word NFT right now thinks scam almost immediately. And I actually don't blame them for that. I, I think had I not kind of very thoroughly looked into this and, and had what I think is a very foundational understanding of the technology, if I was judging NFTs based on what's out there right now, um, I would think it's complete nonsense and it's all a scam because 99.9% .9 of projects are truly worthless. And I know it's easy for me to say like, hey, we're different. And then that, that would be for everyone to make up their own mind on. But all I can say is that I really believe that the vast majority of projects out there right now are really cash grabs. So it's people trying to use 
speculation and FOMO and hype uh, to build up interest in their project, but they have no real intention to build anything long-term or anything with longevity. And so I would encourage people, if they have that opinion of NFTs right now, uh, they're not wrong. Uh, and that right now we're in a very bad life cycle of this technology, but don't let that shape and completely uh, kind of shut you off from the future promise that this kind of technology has. Because I have no doubt in my mind, I'm going on the record now, this will be up there on the podcast, that within <laughs> two, two, two to five years, every single one of us will own NFTs and NFTs will be a foundational technology in all of our lives. So I'm on the record now as saying that undeniably that will be the case. And so I don't want people's uh, kind of current view of what's happening in the NFT industry to put them off ever being curious about this technology. So take some time to look into it, to look into what this can be in the future rather than what it is now. Uh, so yes, I give this kind of consultancy work to other people interested in the field because I want more people to make projects with real benefit that have a real longevity and a real purpose because I think stuff like that is what's going to encourage um, more people to enter the space. So we have some pretty exciting things coming up. Um, we actually have a pretty big uh, conversation coming up with some major skincare companies, let's just say, who we're jumping on a call with in the next uh, next week, actually, uh, because they're very interested in what we're doing with Ape Docs and they want to support and also ask a little bit about how they could get involved in this industry. We already have partnerships with you know companies like Figs, which is great for us. It's like a billion dollar scrubs company. We have a lot of question bank um, partnerships and uh, educational courses. Uh, and then the other thing that I'm really excited about is that within the next week, we're about to launch our journal. So it's uh, it's called the Annals of Health Innovation. Uh, and we've launched it in partnership with something called Curious, which is a, a, a big journal. And so we will actually have, we have our own uh, place where people within our community and our research hub um, can find projects, find people to work on and research and, and academic work on, and also can then submit to our journal for publication consideration. And it was PubMed ID'd. And so that is huge for us because um, we are literally encouraging people to, to do high quality research that can impact patient care around the world and can also help each of our community members to um, improve their own CVs and help with their career prospects. Because obviously we know that, you know, academic uh, engagement is something that can help throughout the the career of a healthcare worker. Uh, and so that's something I'm super, super excited about. And I think is another example of how we are building something to last. We're not in here for some short-term speculation. Um, we literally have um, a partnership hub right now with a, almost $1,000 worth of discounts. We have this mentorship system. We have this journal coming out. We're going to be doing in-person meetups actually very soon across New York and then likely London is our next place. So, um, our commitment is we're going to make the best community of healthcare workers in the world. And that's that's the vision of what we're trying to do. Um, and so I encourage people to to take a look at our project, but also spend at least a couple of hours looking into NFT blockchain more broadly and getting curious about this technology, which is going to change all of our lives. Well, you've really thought through the roadmap, which is excellent. Like, I mean, these meetups sound cool, some of these partnerships that are coming as well. And it seems like you've built something that's sustainable rather than just hype, which is, is great. And the healthcare professionals would definitely love that. Often, I think our healthcare professionals can feel isolated. And, and this brings people across the globe together as well. Um, it's international. Yeah. So, Osama, well done on that. I'm excited to see what you guys have, have coming next. Where can people follow the project? Can, can you tell us the, like, the domains or the, or the social media sure. handles of, of yourself as, as well as the projects? Yeah, absolutely. So, so my social media handles is uh, at Osama Sayed MD on Twitter and it's at Osama Sayed on Instagram. And uh, the handle for Ape Docs is at Ape Docs. So that's A P E D O C S. 
Um, and then uh, the website is apedocs.com. So uh, keep in mind that there are a bunch of fakes and NFT lands. So make sure you're very careful about, about which website you're on. Um, but that is uh, kind of where you can find the best information about us. Uh, we also have a Discord server, which uh, has like the majority of the areas are completely free to join, even if you're not an NFT holder. So if you are a medical student or a doctor or anyone in healthcare curious, but you know, you think, oh, I don't really want to buy an NFT or I don't know how to do that. Check out our Discord, which is linked on our Instagram page and on our website. Um, and within that, we have a little subsection called crypto slash web free uh, university. And we have this really useful kind of primer guide on, on, uh, how you can get introduced to this technology, useful podcast links, YouTube videos, uh, articles. And so um, I'd encourage people to check that out, get involved in the community, ask any questions you might have in our Discord. And uh, that's where we all tend to live. So yeah, check that out. Incredible. And Osama, final question before we run up the podcast. Is there anyone or, or the, a group of people that inspire you um, in life? You know, I, I get really inspired by people who um, are willing to take risks and do things differently. And so uh, I think uh, particularly, this is a little bit weird, but my, my brother, uh, kind of my, my uh, elder brother Hamza, he was also a doctor and he decided to leave before he even started his job as an F1. So, you know, straight after medical school, he left medicine and he decided, you know, I want to take some risks. I want to pursue other things that I'm passionate about. And he went on a pretty long journey, like seven, eight years where so many people were asking questions like, oh, why not? If you'd been, if you'd stuck to your training pathway by now, you could have been a registrar or you could have been a consultant. And he stuck to his guns because he had other things he wanted to do. And uh, just earlier this year, he released this podcast called The Trojan Horse Affair uh, with the New York Times. And it ended up being like the number one podcast in the world. And it, oh, wow. and, yeah, and it did a lot of good and it focused on issues with the Muslim community and, and the media and all these kind of things. And I found that really inspirational that having kind of lived through that with Hamza the entire time of having that scrutiny from even people close to you, but also people on the outside asking, you know, you know, why aren't you doing the traditional safe thing? But he really had that courage of his convictions. And now, you know, mashallah, he's, he's, he's reaping the benefits of that. And I look at something like that and even on other scales, you know, other people in my friendship circles, you know, Ali Abdal is, is a good friend of mine and seeing what he did with, you know, pursuing this youtube channel becoming a content creator deciding to choose the the path less trodden um but doing it in a really kind of joyous way but also in a way that uh doesn't get isn't shy and isn't apologetic um i really admire people like that who decide to take these risks and focus on what they truly want because i think it's so easy for us to internalize um what society wants us to want and so people like that i think i find really inspirational so um yeah that, that's what i would say right now that, I mean, there's a lot of inspirational people around you, and I need to get your brother on the next podcast. <laughs> That's what I'm <laughs> yeah, thinking yeah. now. I got more guests: Shireen, uh, Shireen's sister Anya, Anya's husband Yusuf, <laughs> and your whole family. <laughs> These three yeah, to be coming true. on. Um, so incredible stuff, Osama. I would love to get you back on the podcast at some point. See where you're at with Ape Docs and other projects in the future. This has been incredible. Thanks for kind of giving us insight into Osama's brain why you made certain decisions in life. Super interesting, what you're always up to as well. Uh, I like surrounding myself with people such as yourself and others who are a bit different, like you said, who think differently, take risks. And that's what I've been trying to do here as well. And and I, I hope we're all successful in the next few years. So uh, this has been an incredible conversation. And I will catch you offline. And to listeners, this will be heard on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. So stay tuned, subscribe, give us feedback. This was recorded on Calling App. Uh, so please give me feedback on 
anything you may want in the future episodes, anything, any guests you may want as well, I can try and get them for you guys as well. So, Osama, it's a pleasure. I'll catch you offline. See you, buddy. Oh, always a pleasure to have all the best. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.